Amen. Good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. Again, we'll be finishing up our time with the story of the woman at the well today. Uh, And then uh, next week we will finish chapter 4. So, but as you're turning there, we're going to be in verse 35. That's where we're going to start up. I want to take a moment and talk a little bit about marketing research. Um, So, for those of you who don't know, marketing research is essentially like the science that they use to consciously and subconsciously draw you in and make you give value to a product. So an easy way to think of this is to think about uh, medication ads on TV, right? So when you think about a medication ad, how does the ad always start off? It's like somber music, everybody's sad and lonely, and they can like, they need a walker to get around, right? But then they take like one pill from this company and their whole life is better, right? Like the music is better, they're happy, like they, they suddenly have a tan, like all of this, so, and, but the point that they're trying to make is that if you, if you value our product, your life will be better, right? And so they're trying to very consciously sell you and draw you in. But it goes a lot deeper than that. I think we all know that your digital footprint gets analyzed like every second of every day. You know, you'll say something and then Facebook is like, maybe you need a knife that can cut a penny. You know, you never know. And, but even think a little bit deeper than that to the subconscious level. Do you know why it's colder in restaurants? It's colder in restaurants because you are more likely to buy more food if you're cold versus when you're hot. That's why restaurants are often set to be in the low 60s. Think about your kids. The next time you go to the grocery store, take a walk down the cereal aisle, and if you look, almost every mascot is looking down. The reason for that is because the mascots are then eye level with your children that make them more engaging for the child. And they know if your child screams enough, you will buy those blueberry charms, right? And so all of this is trying to teach you to add value to something that they want you to, to be connected by because ultimately they want to draw you and your money in to their product. But what if there was something in the universe that already had value? How would we be drawn to that? And I think that that's the question that we can ask today in our passage and I think we get the answer from it. So without any further kind of conversation, we're going to pick up, and again, we're in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. This is Jesus speaking. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, or behold, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, being Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believe because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So as we return to this passage, we're continuing at first with Jesus' cutaway scene in the story, his, his discourse, his teaching of his disciples. And in it, he's teaching them about the will of the Father. Pastor Jeff talked about that some last week as well. And his will is to what? Is to reap the harvest. 
That's, that's the main thrust we're supposed to get from Jesus' teaching to his disciples. And what he's doing there is he's teaching a theology, a, a study of salvation. He's showing them God's view of salvation when they'd really only seen their view. A view of salvation that includes something the original audience would have heard as scandalous. And it's something that's really easy to miss. And this is where I want to take a minute and break down the structure of John's gospel a little bit, especially chapter 4 here. Because I think a lot of times if you look at maybe a survey book or you hear someone talk about the gospel of John, they'll say, well, John is easy to read because it was written for the uneducated. It was written for people who couldn't read Greek really well. And so it's just an easy book. It's like, it's like the kid's gospel. And I think partially that is true. He was aiming for that kind of audience. But I also think the reason that John is so much easier to read is he's a really good author. He knows what he's doing. And even if we just take a minute and just break down this chapter as a movie, okay? So this is going to sound silly, but humor me for just a second, all right? So our main character, Jesus, has begun this life-changing ministry. He's begun to reveal himself to the Jewish people. He's called his disciples. And then he goes somewhere he shouldn't be, Samaria. This is not somewhere that Jews historically went. In fact, these were the enemies of the Israelite people. And now he's talking to someone that he should not talk to. In this era before Christianity kind of rewrote social norms, a woman should not speak to a man and a man not to a woman in public. And this isn't just any woman. This is a woman who is despised even by the Jewish people's enemies, the Samaritans. That's why she's alone by herself in the middle of the day at this well. So what does Jesus do, though? Right? So there's already some tension starting to build. Jesus approaches her, and he speaks to her. And more than that, he reveals his true nature to her. He tells her that I am the spring of living water. And this shocks her to such a degree, and I think this is such a good point. He talks about she leaves her water jar, right? So in this scene, she is so shocked at hearing at who he really is. She leaves everything behind and runs back to town. And so far in this scene, we've seen that she is rejected by those in this town. These are the people that know her sin and her shame. And she breathlessly comes back into town. She's calling people over. We see her almost like bending over, trying to catch her breath. And all the people start to come over to see, what is she doing? And then she says, come and see this man. Come and see him. Could he be the Christ? Could he be the Messiah, the one that our people have waited thousands of years for? People begin to look at each other and mutter. And then, just as the tension reaches a pitch, we cut away. Like, what? John, what? Come on, man. Like, capitalize on that. We want to see what happens. Do they come? Do they not? Do they reject her? Do they be like, oh, this lady, we don't want to hear from her. Do they, do they come and see Christ? What happens? Instead, we get a cutaway. And the reason for that is the theology of verses 31 to 38 are being lived out in John 4. That theology of salvation that Jesus was teaching his disciples about, we actually get to see it happen in real time. This woman was searching for something that life could not provide for her. She could never reach the contentedness that we talked about last week. And so she went from thing to thing to thing, even to husband to husband to husband, searching for something, wringing out this life for all the pleasure it could offer. And it still wasn't enough. 
But Jesus saw her desire, saw her longing for something more, and showed her that her thirst could be satisfied, not by the world, but by Christ. Jesus reaped a harvest of this woman's life change. And at that point, John brings us back to our scene. He cuts away from the teaching in Jesus' time, and he comes back, and the people, they, they are interested, they're engaged, they're like, the, the Christ? After hundreds of years of silence, and he comes to us, the Samaritans? So they come out, and they hear Jesus. And they want to hear more, so he, they ask him to stay, and he stays for two more days. And many more believed. And then I think we reach our climax in verse 42. When they turn to the woman who they used to reject and they tell her, for we ourselves have heard, we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Church, hang on to the glory of that passage. That, that these people who used to be rejected by the Israelite people and have been called to Jesus by a woman that they themselves rejected, now they know the Savior of the world because of one breathless woman's testimony. John's work here is a beautiful example of a real-time object lesson. I believe that, that his lesson gives us two points that we're going to kind of run with today. Two explicit things that we can see and that we can know about God and ourselves. And point number one is that God is drawing a people to himself. God is drawing a people to himself. So in his discourse, in his teaching, Jesus tells his disciples that they are reaping what they did not sow. Right? So, so the mass conversion of most of this town is not because they had been here for a long time, they'd been praying and working really hard for the conversion of the Samaritans. In fact, the disciples likely had never been to Samaria before Jesus brought them here. So who had been sowing the gospel? Now there's some, some thought that maybe John the Baptist's ministry could have made it to this part of Samaria, and that may very well be true, but ultimately the one who had been sowing the gospel was God himself. He had been working in the life of the woman at the well to show her her desperation. He had been working in the hearts and the circumstances and the lives of all this village. And he even used this woman's sin and shame for her to arrive at the well in the middle of the day when nobody else would be there. She met Jesus. God was the one sowing the gospel in every aspect of their lives. He was sovereignly drawing them to himself. And throughout the Old Testament, he had been preparing a people to be his very own possession. And now the harvest was ready to be taken up. What Jesus is doing here is he's inaugurating the harvest of salvation for all people, not just for the Israelites. Today we might call this the effectual calling and in this doctrine, the Spirit is sent out to prepare the hearts of God's people so that He is irresistible to them when the gospel is preached. And church, that's what we see here. We see God working in these circumstances, in this sovereignly revealing His unique glory so that their desires were reorganized. The things of this world for the woman at the well and for most of the town 
started to grow dim and Christ became all-consuming. And church, this is why we pray for the salvation of others today. We pray that God would invade the hearts and the minds of those around us, giving them a taste of something more than their sin and this world could offer them. Showing them that it is a cheap substitute for the real thing. And when he does that, he reveals himself to be the only being in all the universe of infinite and true value. The only one who deserves worship. Think about Jesus' words in the beginning of John 4. When the woman asks him, should we worship at Jerusalem or here, meaning Mount Gerizim? And he responds, neither. <laughs> you worship here, you worship me. He is revealing his glory, and more than any marketing research, he is drawing people to himself by showing his actual and true value. He is the spring of living water. This truth is why we can have confidence that even the chief of sinners can truly be saved. This being, this Christ of infinite worth has drawn near to us when we could never draw near to him. And he doesn't come for perfect people. Remember, at this point in history, only Jews could be saved by God. And only Jews who followed the covenant, who were within the bounds of the law. So these people, this woman... How could they be saved? And so far in John, we've seen almost like a contradiction. The people who should be God's people, right? The, the Jewish people, especially the religious leaders, the Pharisees, these were the people who were perfectly within the covenant. They followed even extra laws that they made up to make themselves holier. But when they encounter Jesus, how do they respond? They're incredulous. They reject him. And here we see something significant, and we're removed from the culture of the gospel, so it's hard for us to see, but the Samaritans were evil. In fact, a common term that was used for them was, was dogs. And yet here they are, in the face of Nicodemus struggling to believe, just in our rearview mirror of John chapter 3, a town of Samaritans believe in Christ as the Messiah. So imagine the shock upon hearing this story because not only are the religious leaders left out of the kingdom, look at who's brought in. Now, and again, I, this is hard for us to grasp because we don't really have a situation like this today. We don't, I don't even think we would know a Samaritan if we saw them, right? And so if you wonder what this might be like today, think of the story of Rory, Rory Ratcliffe. Does anyone know who that is? I didn't think so. Do you know who Jeffrey Dahmer is? Jeffrey Dahmer, for those of you who don't know, is the most prolific serial killer of the 20th century. He was convicted of the murder of 15 boys and likely more uh, and some other pretty unspeakable crimes. But he was given an interview by a news station asking him about it. And the last question they asked him was, what do you hope to get out of life now after he'd been convicted? And he said, I just wish I could get some peace. And so one man who was watching the interview thought, you know what, I, 
I might have the answer for that. And he mailed him a Bible study. A few months later, that man received a letter back that Dahmer had done his Bible study and had began to see his need for a savior. He then corresponded with him several times and then Jeffrey Dahmer wrote him a letter and said, how can I get baptized? The prison chaplain was unwilling to do it and every person that his outside friend would call wouldn't even give them the time of day until one man named Roy Ratcliffe said that he would go and speak to Jeffrey Dahmer. So he went to Columbia Correctional Institution and he spoke with him several times and after much deliberation he would walk in one day and baptize him as a forgiven believer in Christ. Can you imagine being a member of that church? They couldn't. Over half of his church disappeared overnight and the very next Sunday a man stood up and screamed at him in the middle of his sermon, if Jeffrey Dahmer is going to heaven, you won't see me there. And while we won't know until eternity if Dahmer's conversion was true, he did show signs consistently of repentance and even evangelism for the last eight months of his life until he was killed by his cellmate. Now we hear a story like that and we're thinking, no way, no. How could he be saved? How could God be willing to save someone like that? Church, that's what the original audience of this story heard. No, no. God could save a, a pretty messed up Jew, but the Samaritans, come on. The woman at the well, five husbands? What a joke. The Samaritans were traitors. They had betrayed the covenant and, and, and mixed their heritage, intermarried with others. They had betrayed the temple and made their own temple on another's place. They were traitors to the Israelites and to God himself. They were so hated that the Jews wouldn't even set foot on their land. They would take a long way around a river because just the dirt of their roads made God's real people unclean. So when Jesus comes, how does he come? With judgment? No, with compassion. And if that weren't shocking enough, he approaches, like we talked about, a woman that he shouldn't be speaking to, a woman that was shamed even by the Samaritans, showing us the same thing Paul will pick up on in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This gospel was drawing a people and the promise was is that no one is too far off. God had thrown open the doors to his kingdom and shouted from the rooftops, all who are willing can come. And if you're here today and not a Christian, those words still ring true. Both this passage and I beg you, come and see this man who is indeed the savior of the world. He can save all who are far off. And, and I want you to hear something even more scandalous. He delights to do it. This is not the God of Islam who begrudgingly redeems his people. This is the God of the Bible, the God of compassion, who has the will of the Father, which is to delight in saving people who hate him. 
He is gentle and lowly. And even if the world despises you, he won't. Reminds me of a quote by J.I. Packer. He said, there is tremendous relief in knowing his love for me is utterly realistic. Based at every point on a prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me as I so often am disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. What God is doing here is showing that his salvation can be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. This isn't a salvation partitioned off for a specific people, not even people who are cleaned up. God is drawing all. And it can reach the least of these both then and today. So if you're not a Christian today, your sin does not disqualify you from the gospel. In fact, your sin qualifies you for the gospel. It is a gospel of redemption from sin. And if you are believers in this room, do not give up on the one who seems too far off. The sovereign God of the universe who crafted their heart is the only one we should trust to soften it. And church, you are invited into this grand mission of redemption. That's going to be our second point this morning. We are invited to take part in the harvest. Point number two, we are invited to take part in the harvest. So when we come to faith in Christ it's, it's easy to feel like we've been placed on a bench, right? And we're like, just put me in coach. And he says, wait until eternity. <laughs> and, but that's not the case. We are called into a field. We are called into, if we just look at Jesus' own words, labor. Look at verse 35, where Jesus tells them, look. Uh, I think a, a better way to understand that is behold. It's an emphatic command to pay attention, to hear or to see. And he says right after that, lift up your eyes. See people the way that God sees them, not the way that you see them. Rather than being consumed by the things of this world or or our own lives, we have eyes that are set on things that matter to God, to His people. And this is a reminder we see over and over in Scripture in the Old and New Testament. Church, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, God has placed people around you and he has invited you and called you into the field of harvesting. And think about the mercy of this moment where you are invited to share about the one who saved you from your sin. You can be like the woman at the well and you can run back to the people who know your sin and your shame and you can say, come and see this man who told me all I ever did. And loved me anyway. Think of, uh, it makes me think of Luke 19. When the Pharisees told Jesus, hey, you need to get your disciples. You need, to, you need to stop them from preaching. This is enough. Enough is enough. And what Jesus says to them is, I tell you, even if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Church, God's creation cannot help but speak of him and make his name known. And that should be doubly true for us who are his creation and his recreation purchased by his own blood. 
So let us lift our eyes off of worthless things, off of the idols that draw our attention, and see that the harvest is ready. I don't need to tell you how desperate this world is. And, and let's not even talk about the news and what's going on in the greater world. Just the people that we see around us. I have a professor, he's one of the evangelism professors, and what he does often is he actually makes it a point to go to the grocery store with his wife, and he just looks people in the eyes. And he said, nine times out of ten, I can tell if they need prayer. He said, you just see the, the hurt and the weariness and the broken, it just covers their face, darkens their eyes. Do we see that in our homes, in our offices, in our schools? And think about, just like the woman at the well was invited to carry light into that town that had no frame of reference for the gospel coming to them, you can carry the gospel there. And Jesus showed the woman at the well and that town the life they were really looking for, a hope in the midst of darkness. Church, you're invited into that mission. And when we do that, when we commit to working this field, to harvesting and laboring in this way, we find a unique joy that nothing else can steal or replicate. An eternal rejoicing. That's what verse 36 is talking about. Rejoicing together with the sower and the reaper. Remember who we talked about the ultimate sower was? God himself. I think we get to see a glimpse of that in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. I'll, you don't need to flip there, I'll read it to you. After this I looked, John speaking, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Church, on that great day, we can rejoice with all of God's people before the throne. What grace it is that we have a privilege to point people to a throne we rebelled against. The God who sits on the throne that we hated has now employed us as his ambassadors. And on that day, if we were faithful to the task of, of working this field, we will get to sing that song. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And as we sing it, you will hear the voice of those you invited to Christ in your ears. That is a unique joy. Nothing in the universe will be able to compete with. So how do we enter this, this work of the harvest? Look no further than John 4. Both Jesus' words and the, and the woman at the well are models of evangelism for us. Jesus takes the gospel where it has never been and where it is desperately needed even though it likely would cost him reputation in the eyes of the world. 
He then shows compassion to those who have been cast aside by this world. Ultimately showing the woman at the well and this village that their true needs could be met by Christ alone, by him alone. And after the woman at the well encounters Jesus, she leaves behind her water jar. Remember that little part of the story? She leaves behind what she thought mattered. And she runs back to the people that knew her sin and her shame. And she told them about the gospel. She told her story. But her focus was Christ. And in doing so, her repentance became more notorious than her sin. And what was the result of her faithfulness here? Many believed. You want to talk about somebody disqualified to share the gospel? Many believed. And here's the end goal. And I'm going to read it again. Verse 42. They, being the people who believed, said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's our goal. I want you to see that her testimony was not just her life change, was not just her actions, not just, well, I'm going to share the gospel by being a good neighbor. She shared the gospel with her words. She knew what it would cost her, but she had been drawn to something of infinite more value than what was left of her reputation. And while our lifestyle is important and should never be out of step with our confession, God has chosen our words as the vehicle for his gospel to go out. We see see more of that in Romans chapter 10. This is a hard thing. I'm not going to pretend that this is easy. This is difficult. But look at her. She started this story hiding hiding, afraid to be around those in her town. Yet when she encountered Christ, she couldn't help but drop everything and run back to them to tell them about him. Think back to uh, Jeffrey Dahmer once more. Eight days before he was killed, his friend received a letter and and a roll of stamps. And he said, please send me 25 more of those Bible studies. I plan to start one on my cell block. Church, what is stopping us? What could possibly stop us? I say this with conviction in my own heart for working harder to come up with excuses than asking God to give me eyes to see the harvest. As Jeff reminded us last week, we could roam this world and have everything it offers. But if we don't pursue the will of the Father, it's worthless. And you will find no rest here. Too often I feel those of us in the reformed world, if we're honest, identify in the story of the prodigal son with the older brother instead of the father. Rather than searching and praying for the lost to be found, we tend to overestimate ourselves and become cold-hearted to the true will of the Father. Let us repent. And let our repentance follow action.
we forget that we too were once lost and exchanged the truth of God for a lie until someone came to us and worked the harvest in our hearts that God had been preparing and called us to Christ. I believe that this is the reason that we get stories like this. They're not meant to just inspire us emotionally. They're meant to inspire us to work this field. And we don't work it so that Christ's fellowship could be made great. We work it so that God's name might be glorified and that his kingdom might advance. These verses thaw the ice from our heart and remind us that we've been given a new heart and a new calling, one that cannot help but and beat for the will of the Father and making his name great. Let that mark us. If nothing else, Let that mark us. With our last few minutes this morning, I want to spend uh, some time talking about what this looks like in real life. Because as much as we wish this to be so, if you've practiced evangelism, you know it's not always this straightforward. Or maybe even our attempts aren't successful. So how does this passage encourage us to press on when it's tough or when it's unsuccessful in our working of this field? So when it's difficult to work this harvest, maybe the person we've been evangelizing to still hasn't changed. It's been years. Maybe that family member is still cold to the gospel. Maybe our coworkers make jokes, everybody stop. The Christian showed up. Can't talk about that anymore. The Lord reminds us in those moments, this is a labor. This is not a vacation position. This is work. But look at the harvest. Look at the wages that we receive of eternal life and eternal joy. But we have to remember, just like working a true field, a a real field, not every season we get to harvest. Some seasons are planting. Some seasons are, are pruning and tending. But eventually some are harvesting. Some will be more discouraging than others, and some seasons will be harder than others. But in these moments, we remember that we are not the Lord of the harvest. God is, and that's good news. <laughs> Our mission is to share and trust that His goodness will work in the hearts of those we share with to soften them and to change them and to bring new life. And so for those of you who have evangelized and seen little fruit, you're in good company. Think of our two Baptist missionary heroes, William Carey and Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson and his wife spent seven years in Burma until they saw one convert. Carey alone spent seven years before he found a convert. But they didn't give up because they were convicted of our two points this morning. God was drawing a people to himself, even in Burma. And that they were invited into that harvest. So they labored for years and years and years. And you know what they saw? A hundredfold return. Church, take heart. Your laboring is not in vain. God will produce fruit in his time. And I'll say you're even even better company because Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, 
I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And as we look at Paul, who we'd maybe call the greatest missionary of all time, not even he could see to it that everyone believed. But that didn't stop him from sharing. That didn't stop his faithfulness all the way to the end of his life. I think a good example of this is uh, Rachel's grandfather. His name was Charlie. So Charlie was in his mid-90s when I met him. And he was a devout atheist. Um, He had been for 50 years. He had been a self-proclaimed devout atheist. And he had rebuffed decades of evangelism from most of Rachel's family. And I spoke to him several times as well. And finally one day he said, Zach, if Jesus is your truth, that's great. If, if that's what my wife wants, that's great. But that's just not true for me. So I said, Charlie, you're smart enough to know that that can't be true. We can't both be right. One of us has to be wrong. And he said, no one ever said that to me before. And then he didn't believe. <laughs> and I want to tell you that he did the next time and the next time, but he didn't. But on his deathbed, one of his final words was that he thought Jesus had taken away his sin. Now, I can't tell you if that conversion was genuine or if it was just out of being on his deathbed, but the hopelessness that many people had felt for decades of evangelizing to him, that was a glimmer of hope that the decades of sowing the gospel in Charlie's heart had taken root in the last few hours of his life. And they could see the light that some of his final words were a confession of Christ alone. And I, I say all that, church, to remind us that when the work is difficult, someone much greater uh, than us can give the growth. So press on. But what about when someone doesn't believe? That family member, that friend, that coworker, they never repent. Did you fail? No. Not even in this passage. Even in this passage, I'm sorry, we see the phrase that many believed. Jesus preached and not everybody believed. And like we said, not even Paul could ensure that all of his hearers believed. Only those that that Christ had softened had come to him. But how is that fair? How, How do we take heart knowing that God will draw some and not others? I'm going to close with this. It's a story from C.H. Spurgeon. He had just preached on Romans 9 and God's electing love. And a woman came up to him right after the service. And she said, I cannot understand why God could say that he hated Esau or he didn't draw Esau. Spurgeon responded, that is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. God chose to love and save his people while they were his enemies. So that as his children, we might call others to the same amazing grace. So church, let us put our hand to the plow and never look back knowing that he is the one that will give the growth. Pray with me.
Lord, this is, a, this is a, a weary place to live. But what grace it is that we are not alone in it. And what grace it is that we know that we have a heavenly citizenship that will one day be consummated. But even in this sojourning land, you are with us. And you give us a mission. You invite us into ambassadorship of the kingdom that we once rebelled against. Now we get to wear and speak for. Let our passion for that never grow cold and die. And Lord, if it has, I pray that you would rekindle it with a fire that only you can. Remind us that you are the same God of Ezekiel who breathed life into dry bones. You can do that in our hearts and in the lives of those lost around us. Father, we ask for mercy in this task. We are weak. But when we are weak, you are strong. And your power is made perfect in our weakness. So I pray for boldness to be faithful to the mission and to the will of the Father. Let that mark Christ's fellowship in every single one of our lives. Lord, we ask for this grace in the name of Christ who draws near to us when we could never draw near to him. Amen.